Well, good morning, Sunridge. How are you doing today? Can we just thank our worship and our tech team for that awesome experience that we just had? Man, what a powerful set. Hey, I just should comment. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but our hallways, aren't they looking so good? I, there are so many people that have put time and energy and effort and love into that. We've got our designers, Jennifer and Lindsay, and those are spouses, Gary and Jerry, they were here yesterday, Roger Yeersman, a part of that, uh, Curtis, Matt, Scott and Kim Johnson, they've been teaming up with Tony and Bob, I mean, there are so many people that have been contributing to this, our A-team, and so we ought to, right now, let's just thank them again for all the hard work, so many of our volunteers have put in so much love and energy into that, it looks so, so Good. Well, my name is Jed. It is an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And whether it's your first Sunday with us or you've called Sunridge home for any considerable amount of time, we are just so glad and grateful that you would give us a portion of your weekend. You've heard earlier that today is the kickoff Sunday for the NFL season. I just want to tell Kenny, I, I appreciate that you can still rock that Chargers jersey because as a San Diego kid born and raised, I just can't do it anymore. I cannot get myself to watch the Chargers, but Kenny, you're a better man than I am. We're not just kicking off the football year here. At Sunridge, we're beginning a new series called A History of Us. And in several weeks on September 29th, this series will finish and conclude as this church celebrates 30 years of helping people find and follow Jesus in this valley. And so in preparation for that big celebration, Britt and I charted out a series where we would go back in time when we'd revisit the roots of our heritage, the roots of the church, the roots of us as a people and a movement of God. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. But before we get too far along, we ought to comment and at least get a working definition or some clarity before us about what it means when we say the history of the church. So here's your first fill in the blank. In its fullest sense, church is not a building or a service to attend. Now, I know that's our common vernacular we understand that we can say things like, are you going to church today, or I haven't seen you at church in some time, and I'm not here to have us stop saying those things, but we do need to go further and fuller into the fact that this word that we have, the church we take from ecclesia, this political calling out, the called out ones, these people who have been rescued by God and transferred into the kingdom of his son who are living in response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. It's not about some static place or something to attend. It is about people inspired by God, empowered by his Holy Spirit, called to change this world for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ and everyone in it. That is the church. That's our history. That's what you and I get to be a part of. Every time we gather here in this building, we are continuing in that legacy, that tradition, that truth, the hope. Here's the deal. 
we can say those things and maybe it lights a little fire underneath your butt and you get excited about hearing this movement that you get to be a part of. But if we want to have an accurate understanding of the history of us, the history of the church, then what we ought to comment on is the necessity of us to recognize that really our history is just broken people. It's your next fill in the blank. Broken people being called toward God's wholeness. Last December, we did a series here on Sunday morning called Peace on Earth. And my part of that sermon series, I did a message called Peace and Pieces, a wordplay. We talked about how peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness or fullness. And we use this imagery of puzzle pieces being strewn across the floor and trying to put those things together and how the wholeness, the peace of God, what you and I are called to is to take our individual pieces, our brokenness, to see what is going on in our world and recognize that God is restoring and putting something together that you and I could not do apart from Him. And when we think about the church and we think about our history, we should again emphasize that our history is a dysfunctional, broken, messed up one because, again, we're people. We're human. And our contribution to this story, God's redemptive story, is our brokenness. And that's not something we ought to shy away from. It's something that we ought to fully embrace and be okay with. So if you have your Bibles... You can turn to Genesis chapter 12. If not, some of it will be up on the screen. If you have your smartphone, you can go to BibleGateway.com or your Bible app. You can check your fantasy team really quickly. I'll give you that. And then uh, we'll go on from there. Some of you are going to take me up on that offer. I know you are. You're welcome. Genesis chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How many of you have heard that before? Good. And we all heard it because I just read it. I love that joke. I pull that one out like once a year. I haven't done it in a while. So, This passage of Scripture is actually one of the most important texts in your Bible. And the character that we're introduced, introduced to, Abram, Abram, is actually seen as the father or the descendant, the ancestor of three of our major world religions. Christianity would be the latest one. That's us, Judaism and Islam. And I know in our common world, it's difficult for us to see the together this there. We feel a lot of separation and pushing apart. But this man who is called by God to leave his home and to go to an unknown place, this is where it begins. This is our story. This is our history. And I'll be honest with you. When I was prepping initially for this message, what I was inclined to do, what I wanted to do is 
present this in a way that, that wouldn't be too difficult for me. You know, I could talk about how our history is one of God calling us and us going, and our history is one of, of faith and doubt. Our history is one of God changing us when we are resistant. And that's a part of the story. I could talk to us about taking a step of courage and faith. I could talk to us about how God is inviting us to be a part of something different and unbeknownst to us. And all of that is in this story. But as I was preparing this week and talking to some of our staff members, Bob and Lisa, those two in particular, I told them that on Tuesday night after my note sheet was already finished, I couldn't help but start feeling like what I was saying wasn't tough enough. Not because we're up here to just say hard things, but I felt a little bit dishonest with how I wanted to approach this passage because we're in this series that's supposed to just celebrate and celebrate. But the reality is, the story and what we're accustomed to seeing, there's a lot more going on here. And so they encouraged me to do the honest thing and to go with some of that stuff that came on that Tuesday night around midnight. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to give us just three observations from this story that place us in the person of Abraham and then in the Old Testament and then pushes through the centuries to us today. So you guys okay with that? All right. So let's start with something that's happening here. And by the way, I know that we're not a church that's accustomed to bringing our, our Bibles anymore, but uh, it would be helpful maybe in the future to bring that with you, because then in a situation like this, when I refer to something that's not up on the screens, you can do that. But then I did realize this stuff is up on the screens. So never mind, but you can still bring your Bibles. <laughs> Genesis chapter 11, verse 26, says this. When Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now here's what's fascinating about this verse. It, it seems inconsequential. So often in Scripture we see these genealogies, these listings of people, and we don't think much of it. We just pass through them. But if we were reading along in this Genesis narrative, after the first 11 chapters, we've, we have seen sin introduced into the world through Adam and Eve, and we have seen humanity over and over make the same mistake, perpetuating their brokenness, we start to find patterns. People start to live in patterned ways. But one of the ways that a pattern is broken in this family line is this man named Terah. And we don't know much about him, but if you had your Bibles, you would see that the generations before him, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his great-great-grandfather, all of those that came before him pretty much did life the same way. And the way they did it was this. Somewhere around the age of 30, they had kids. But there's something about Terah here. It says that it wasn't until he was 70 years old. And I don't think that Terah didn't have kids because he was a millennial that was focused on his career and he didn't want to have children. Something in Terah's life probably prevented him from having children. 
And that inability to have children would actually haunt his own son, Abram. That's a part of Abram's story as well. But see, there's more here than even just the fact that Terah wasn't able to have kids until he was later in age. Verse 27 says this, Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. And in verse 28 says, Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. You know, when my grandmother was on her deathbed and I went to go visit her, one of the things that she talked about was how she still almost had this, this anger or at least this ability to reconcile what happened in, in her life with God. Now, my grandmother, uh, it's just odd how things work. She, she lost her husband and became a widow. And then several years later, she lost her daughter, my mom. And then she lost her mom. And so it's like my, my great-grandmother outlived all of them. And, and so my grandmother, even on her deathbed, when she reflected on her years, most importantly, she would say the pain of losing my mom, her daughter, it, it, never, it never left her. And if any of us know people who have lost a child, we see that that tends to just stay. And so Terah has a son named Haran, and he loses his child. And then in verse 31, it says, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, who was the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Catch this, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. The land of Canaan, it's really important in the biblical narrative. It's the promised land. And Terah sets out with his kids and his family. Their intent is to go to Canaan. And up until that point, it's just this really important part of the Mesopotamian world. But he doesn't know that this is the promised land. He doesn't know that centuries thereafter, his family would struggle to make sense of life in this place. But notice in the text, he does not get there. He travels several hundred miles, and where does he stop? Where does he stop? He stops in a place that is the name of his son who died. I think that's significant. I can't imagine every day waking up in a city, in a town, where geographically as the locals are speaking of the weather in their home, in their place, that bears the name of a child who is no longer with you. And for the rest of his life, Ter resides in this hometown that reminds him of his son who is no longer there. And in verse 32, it says, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And then Genesis 12 happens. 
That's when the Lord says to Abram to go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Do you see here that this chapter of Scripture isn't just this fun story that pops up that introduces us to how we're called to bless the world? Do you see here that there are actual human beings with real lives and real problems? And here's your next fill in the blank. This promise from God to Abram, this calling, this charging to him is preceded by personal tragedy. That's where we are in the narrative. So if you want to comment on our history and the people of God, we ought to highlight the fact that it begins from a place of heartache and pain. There is real hurt here. And so when God calls Abram to leave this land that bears his brother's name and now has his past father, God calls him to actually complete the journey. God calls Abram to finish out what his father set out to do. Now here's the thing. We know that Terah wasn't a man who worshipped Yahweh, who, who did worship this God. He wasn't. He's commented as worshiping pagan deities in Joshua. So, so we know that he probably wasn't cognizant of the creator of the world, God Almighty, being the purpose and the reason for him traveling. But what we do see again is Abram is interjected into the story to finish out what his father started. And the reason why it's important for us to see that is because it reminds us that God has always been doing something before you and I came onto the scene. He's always been up to something else. It's not just about us, and it's sobering to remember that it went before us, and it'll probably continue after us, and yet God is still doing His part to reconcile this world. And so if you are in a season or you're here and you know what personal tragedy or trauma or pain is like, again, I'd call to your attention that this is how our story begins. Here's your next fill in the blank. The overemphasis on what is promised unfortunately misappropriates God's purpose. So here's where I'm going to move from just Abram's personal life to more of the issue that takes place for the remainder of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. Note what God promises to Abram, the, the what's, the particulars of what he says Abram will receive. He says that there's going to be land. He's going to make him a great nation and that in blessing him, he's going to make his name great. That's the triad of promises. Land, a great nation, and a great name. And here's the part of the message that I was uncomfortable with, more than anything. Here's where I'm going to have to ask for your mercy and your grace. If I say anything 
that rubs you the wrong way in hopes of just reminding us of how we have misunderstood for so long, perhaps, what God is promising here. Land, a great nation, and a great name. Three things that are really important, right? We know that land translates to security. We all need a place to stay. We want a home. We don't want to be foreigners or displaced or transients, refugees. We want security. There's stability to a land and having home there and knowing you can come home to that place and relax after a long day's work. And we know what it is to desire and yearn for a great nation, that Abram's family would become the people and the nation of Israel. And we know what it is to want to have renown, to have fame, to be remembered, to have a legacy for people to comment positively on our lives. Here's the issue. The issue isn't what God promises to give. The issue is that we as human beings are sinful and we tend to take and misappropriate. The word misappropriation is a technical term and maybe you've more commonly heard it as embezzlement. Do you know what embezzlement is? It's stealing what's not yours, perhaps from the company that you work in. Uh, when I was a high school student, I, I'm, I'm confessing something that I've never confessed in my life. When I was a high school student, I embezzled from our, our school's ASB uh, snack station. Yeah, I was responsible, I was responsible for overseeing all of our chips and our snacks and our drinks. I was the Mercury team leader, and I got to during class, go into the shop and open up the boxes of Frito-Lay chips and stick them away. I got to do that stuff. That was my responsibility. And I thought fair compensation for my volunteer work meant taking a bag of chips every now and then. And so I did. When I look back on that, however, I know that's not how it was set up. That's not how it was supposed to happen. I wasn't invited to just take what I wanted. There was a cash box where I was supposed to put in money, and I didn't take money from that cash box, but I took from the inventory, so I took money, theoretically, that should go in that cash box. That's embezzling. That's misappropriation. That is taking what I was charged to steward and doing wrong with it. I hope you see that when it comes to the story of the people of God pushing through the centuries to this day, you and I take those three things, land, great nation, and fame, and we have misappropriated. We've erred. I'm the type of person, I really love our country. Can I, can I just say that I really love this country? You know, my dad served in the Navy, and his brothers and cousins either served in the U.S. Navy or the United States Marines. And so that commitment to our country, this great nation, is something that I personally feel tied to. Uh, 
there was a large portion of my adolescence where I wanted to go into the service. And so I have deep appreciation for this country. I'm the type of person when we're at a sporting event and they do flyovers and they sing the national anthem or we're called to the Pledge of Allegiance, I get chills. I feel so grateful that I was born here, that my parents immigrated to this place at San Diego, which is essentially the promised land is where I was raised. And yet, and yet, part of my concern for our world today and what I'm seeing in Christianity here in America is that it seems as though we have not intentionally, but in many ways have displaced or misunderstood what it means to be privileged to grow up or to call this place home, for this to be land that we live in. I think that we have seen or pridefully can look at being a great nation and fail to recognize that our desire to be the most famous or the best isn't exactly what God is calling us as Christ followers to aspire to. At least not in the ways that we might aspire to do that. One of the things that I love about sporting events like the World Cup or the FIBA basketball tournament is that we can wear our colors and we can wave our flag and we can scream with all the vigor and the excitement in the world. But what's happening in that moment is there are other nations with incredibly talented individuals who God graced and gifted with abilities to play a sport. And instead of us warring on a field, we get to watch people kick a ball or shoot hoops. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that a beautiful reminder that if all of us were created in the image of God, that perhaps seeing ourselves in a way that says we are the superiors and whatever we want ought to go perhaps isn't the way. And I'm not saying that to comment on any particular person here. I'm saying that for us to consider where our hearts as individuals are. Land, great nation, great name. Have we stolen because we've misunderstood the purpose of God's promise? So here's where we start to turn a corner. Did you see that God's intention the whole time was this? It says this so that you will be a blessing. So that you will be a blessing, so that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram and his children, his descendants, the nation of Israel, they were supposed to be 
different. They were supposed to show the world that there was a flourishing of human beings in a particular place at a particular time that did not need to look like all of the others. And yet what they failed to do, which was to live in acceptance of what God was inviting them into, is what we have propagated ourselves. We have continued to live in the unfortunate legacy of not taking, accepting this great call that God has given on us to bless the world around us. We instead have selfishly often said, I will take what is mine and I will be concerned with what is mine. And as long as I'm safe, And as long as I have security, and as long as no one is bothering me or infringing upon me, then I am blessed by God. I know what it's like to perpetuate that type of sin and brokenness. And I hope you hear, as I share from this stage, this isn't an indictment on you. This is me reflecting on my own sin. And maybe you're a human like me and you know what that's like. You see, something is fascinating about this text. If you had your Bibles, you could see that at the end of verse 3, there's a little footnote. And here's the footnote for a lot of our Bibles, whether it's the ESV or the NRSV. The footnote will note this, that instead of it saying, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, one of the ways that this is found in the Hebrew is this odd reflexive verb language, by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. And that sounds odd. God's saying, Abram, here's how it's going to work, and you all the families of the earth, they're going to bless themselves. Doesn't that sound selfish? Doesn't that sound counterintuitive to everything that I've just spoken? Doesn't it sound like we're going to just take and bless ourselves? God isn't commenting on how you and I are going to sinfully bless ourselves. God is saying something entirely different. Here is your second and last fill in the blank. The blessing itself is a choice to accept the terms of God's promise. The blessing, the way that we bless ourselves, the way that all the families of the earth are called to bless themselves is to be a blessing. It's to seek and to hope and to pray and to live in a way that would remember that All the nations of the earth, every country and tribe and tongue and people group, regardless of the color of skin or background or religion, that even then God is wanting to reconcile all of us through Jesus Christ and the good news that He would send His Son to die for our sins and not just die there, but rise from the dead and to invite us into this new life. But it doesn't work. It does not work and it is not 
good news for anyone else if we pretend that we are just okay to stay within ourselves, to stay within our church buildings and be satisfied with this gathering. That's lame. It's true. It takes the great gift that God has given us, like this big ASB of all these chips, and it's like, awesome, now we can just eat these chips on our own. What about the people out there? What about the folks who just see church as a building or a service and instead need to see that we're people just like them with our pride and our sin and our fallenness and our woundedness, and our shame, and our guilt, and all of those things, and yet what separates us is just admitting that we do not have the remedy in and of ourselves, and that every single person can experience the goodness and the grace of God. I don't know about you, But it's easy for me to get comfortable with what's right here. I'm a habitual person. I like my rhythms and routines. I like to know what's coming. I like things tidy and neat, which is really hard when I step into our Toyota Sienna (laughs) because we have three children and it looks terrible. But that van, holy smokes. That thing inside is a piece of trash. (laughs) But it gets from one place to another. And you know the best part about that trashy internal van is that in it, it holds the most precious people to me. my wife, and my kids. And they are so messy. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. Not at least in the sense of me loving them or yearning for them to get to where they start and intend to get to. I have this sense that when God looks at the church, he sees this dirty minivan with a lot more space in it than just seven seats. He sees this journey that he is calling us toward and inspiring us on. And he's asking whether or not we're going to take the time and just stop and invite other people along and to say, you don't have to, to like everything about me. I might not agree with you. I might not vote like you or like the music like you like. I might not appreciate what you appreciate. I might be so different than you, but you can come and you can sit next to me and on this journey we can share stories 
And we can reflect on the goodness of a God who is calling us to something so much better than the place that we left with all of our hurt and our tragedies and all that, that reminds us that we're messed up. So here's the final fill in the blank for you. If you don't know if you belong here, our history, it's a promise that you do. We've been saved by grace through faith. It's not our doing so we can boast. It's, it's a gift of God. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works. And Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. All of this is about us being a blessing and inviting people in all of it. And just the very last comment I'll make before we end up, I love how in the original language, Jay Hewitt, uh, my mentor, uh, he, he's the one that, that showed this to me first in the Greek when it says, for we are God's workmanship, the word there is poema. It's where we get the word someday of poem. We're God's poem, his story, his song, his narrative. His way that he has chosen to show this broken world that it's actually not about any of us. It is about his goodness and his desire to pursue us at all costs so that we in turn can continue to bring that to this broken, fallen world. That's our history. That's where we start Let's keep that going. Let's pray.